the bulletin. Um, I didn't, I think I, yeah, I read through both of those passages. If you want to meditate on those throughout the week, um, those are great references to think about Advent. As we shift over to Acts, you want to find your place in Acts chapter 8. I want to, since we do have a little bit of a smaller group here today, I'm going to maybe ask you a few questions um, where there aren't enough of you that you can just wait for someone else to answer. So just going to warn you. First of all, I want to ask, and I'm going to ask again later on just to see if maybe uh, any perspectives change, but what does it mean to evangelize? How many of you would be willing to raise your hand and say that you have done some evangelizing today? Melissa, awesome. Anyone else? No. All right. How about this week or this year, maybe? You've done some? All right. Quite a few, quite a few of you. Um, all right. Just bear that in mind. Bear that question in mind and, and think about why you might not want to raise your hand to that question. Last week, Mike took us through the first half of Acts chapter 8, which follows Philip uh, northward. He, he showed us the map. He went northward in latitude, but downward in elevation. So he went down to Samaria, and there he preaches Christ, and he encounters Simon, the sorcerer, this magician, who tries to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit with money, because he's just a little bit confused about how it works. By this time, though, it's not just Philip there anymore, is it? Who else has joined Philip in Samaria? Anyone remember? <laughs> Mike knows. <laughs> so a couple of the apostles, yeah. So in, uh, back in verse 14, we read this. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So not just any of the apostles, the two kind of big ones, the two most primary important apostles that have so far had the most voice and uh, authority. What, Simon, or what Philip has been doing and, and what happened with Simon that reaches word of the apostles, they sent them Peter and John. And as we continue in chapter 8, we're going to continue following Philip, Peter, and John, who remain together for some time as they journey on from Samaria back to, towards Jerusalem. They think they're going back to Jerusalem. And all along the way, they continue to proclaim the gospel while they're traveling. And they, again, they think they're returning back to Jerusalem, but, but the scattering of the gospel seeds that we've seen has really just begun. And we get to verse 25 is where we're going to pick up today. And when we get to verse 25, this is kind of a transitional verse. It gives us a little bit of information that sets up the next story. So we're going to see Philip split off from the group, from Peter and John, to go back on his own again and have his own rather unlikely or unexpected, at least, wilderness adventure in, in, in and with and through the gifts of God's word and of his spirit. Those are, I would say, the main characters of the story are Philip and the eunuch, but again, the, the main actual actor of the story is God's word and, this, and his spirit. So it's all working together. Let's read, starting in verse 25. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. 
As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south, down, by, down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. Candace. Uh, the eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, Do you understand what you're reading? I think that's my favorite verse. We're going to come back to that one. The man replied, How can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him, the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop. They went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. What? Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. All right, so first I want to back up, and I'm just going to have a kind of a summary slide up here. I'm going to back up and address a few of the many fascinating features of this story. There's a lot in here. So I want to take a few minutes to better understand what's happening in this story before looking at some broader implications or maybe some takeaway thoughts or application for the story. So first of all, there's that abrupt change in plans in verse 26. They started back to Jerusalem and they were proclaiming the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans back in verse 14. But then in, in 26 is where we get this angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, rise up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And in parenthesis, this is a desert road. This is, it might be kind of confusing, like, why are you sending me out to the desert? Like, don't you want me to proclaim the gospel to the villages and the cities? This is a road that kind of goes out to the middle, and like, why? Okay. <laughs> but this isn't the first mention of intervention from an angel of the Lord. We saw this Back even in uh, chapter 5, verse 19, Luke describes the angel of the Lord that comes and sets them free from, from prison. I have a, a map here that might help better visualize what's happening here. So that orange, the main thick orange line, is the journey, or the route that Philip, Peter, and John would have been taking from Jerusalem up into, well, down, <laughs> down the hill but northwards 
into Samaria and then back uh, to Jerusalem, but then before reaching Jerusalem, being redirected um, towards Azotus, Gaza, Caesarea. You see those names that are all referenced. Those are along the coast, so further uh, to the west, towards the coast, and there are some major coastal cities along there, but that's taking them further away and further away from Jerusalem. Go figure. And then for uh, reference, when we get to the Ethiopian, you know, Luke references this Ethiopian eunuch as if we just kind of know what that means, right? Uh, Ethiopia is that bottom, nowadays, that, that's the, the nation of Ethiopia. Back then it could have referred to a larger region, including you know, South Sudan and Sudan, but really on the opposite corner of the Red Sea, really quite far away across a literal divide. Um, it was the, kind of the opposite side of the world for, for Jews. Just go back to the summary slide for now. So that geographical name Ethiopian, it would, it would signal to Luke's audience that this man was from those, those territories south of Egypt. You know, Egypt was kind of their, their African neighbor to the east. So Ethiopia was like even further. They're not neighbors. That's like way, way further across the world. And this region was known for its, its wealth and, and trade connections, its importance, and it had some interactions with the Roman world. Ethiopia kind of interacted with, with Rome as, as a peer. So they were a major uh, political, uh, economical uh, participant at the time. So it's a pretty big deal that this guy, this, this eunuch, was, part, was a part of the royal court official for the queen of the Ethiopians or at least uh, for one major region of it, in charge of her treasure, even, the treasury. Eunuchs were frequently used. We can see this well-documented elsewhere. In ancient Near Eastern courts, they were often um, guards of the harem uh, for obvious reasons or sometimes of the treasury. They were usually considered trustworthy. Um, from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, entry about this, it says, Greek writers had long demonstrated a curiosity about and appreciation of Ethiopians, as is evidenced in Homer's reference to Ethiopians as the farthermost of men. You catch that? The, the people furthest away from us, from the Greeks. And in Herodotus' description of Ethiopians as the tallest and most handsome of all peoples. So it's not that they viewed them as barbarians necessarily, but as this sort of otherworldly, really amazing people. Luke's audience would have seen in the Ethiopian a positive figure, perhaps one to whom even an element of mystery would be attached because of his distant homeland. This is meant to be a story that draws us in. It's like, whoa, what's he doing there and what's going to come of this conversation? So we do have to address what's, what's a eunuch. <laughs> Does anyone want me to not explain what a eunuch is? <laughs> Everyone? <laughs> well, thanks, Mike, um, for giving me this passage. This is a man who had at some point been either made incapable of reproduction or was born that way. And this designation, eunuch, is sometimes elsewhere translated simply as officer or chamberlain because of how often they were associated with such roles and sometimes doesn't necessarily carry that special suggestion of having been mutilated in some way. However, by the usage of this word, 
um, has become synonymous, and at this time had in, in Greek become synonymous with the Latin castratus, um, signifying someone who has been emasculated by force, sometimes, often uh, as a child. Um, if physically a eunuch, if this man was literally a eunuch, then the law from Deuteronomy 23.1 would have prohibited him from full communion in Judaism. Yet we had just, he had just returned from worshiping in Jerusalem, we're told, and he was reading from Isaiah. So this suggests that he was, at least to some extent, a proselyte to Judaism. He believed in the God of the Jews and wanted to worship and learn more about him. If he was, in fact, castrated, he would have been unfit to enter the temple according to the law. Based on, uh, again, Deuteronomy 23.1 also, and I, I won't read these passages, but if you'd like to go more in depth, you can look this up. Deuteronomy 23.1 or Leviticus 21.20 and 22.24 also sheds a little bit more light on that. But just picture being in that eunuch's position. What an interesting but potentially frustrating situation to be in, don't you think? A man who's highly educated and in this, this position of prominence and, and is able to go and, and worship this God that he perceives to be true and yet being told perhaps that he's not able to enter and, and worship with the rest of God's people, to want to worship with God's people, but not be allowed full entry because of something like that. Talk about adding insult to injury, quite literally. And nevertheless, he's here studying a scroll of Isaiah when Philip runs up to join him. And what does Philip say? I didn't put a slide up with the Greek for this, but I, and I'm not a Greek expert. I haven't fully studied the, the Greek language or biblical Greek, but I, I've looked up, I like to look into some of the words because they're curious sometimes. And this one was kind of fun. Um, Yenoskes, ayenoskes. Ana, yenoskes. Yenoskes, ana, yenoskes. Yenoskes is, do you know? And yenosko, or gnostic, nosk, nos, no, knowledge, it's that same root Greek word that we use for knowledge in English. Yenoskes, do you know? Ana, ana, yenoskes. Yenoskes, ana, yenoskes. The word for, do you know what you are making known? It's like it, it rhymes. Do you know that which you are making known? By reading the words, he's reading knowledge. But Philip is asking, are you acquainted with that knowledge? Are you comprehending the truth that you're speaking? You're hearing truth from your lips. And I love the Ethiopian's response. It's so honest and humble. No is the implication. How can I unless someone guides me? And there... I just want to appreciate the humility of being willing to learn from someone other than yourself. This Ethiopian sees this dirty Jewish guy running up to him. For all he knows, he's trying to come rob him. I don't know. We don't know what Philip looked like, but he was a deacon of the church, a, a common man for all we know, who was from a different world from this Ethiopian eunuch. He runs up to him and he has this humility to learn from someone from a totally different, I don't want to say lower, but a different social class or cultural niche. And, and on the flip side of Philip, 
being, having the humility to, to patiently and gently, yet confidently offer what he had, what he knew to be true, to help someone else understand it for themselves. And the passage we're told he was reading, uh, we, we can cross-reference and see that it comes from Isaiah chapter 53. If, you're, if you'd like to follow along, we're going to read a couple things from Isaiah. So if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and read along with the eunuch and Philip and me, we'll read from Isaiah 53, 7. And this is a messianic passage. This is right in the middle of a passage talking about the coming Messiah of, of this Advent that we've been talking about, the day of the Lord, this, this hope and anticipation of someone to save them. And then it says this, Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. You take that passage on its own, and it's really kind of disheartening. The Messiah was led like a lamb to the slaughter and cut down because of my people's rebellion? Oh, wow. And so the, the eunuch understands the general meaning and message of this passage. It's a passage about the Messiah. His question or his confusion is simply about who fulfilled or will fulfill this passage. If this is talking about someone who already lived and died and is, is gone, then that hope is gone. All right? And he wonders if Isaiah, the great prophet, is maybe speaking of himself, who is yet to come again, or about someone else. And here we circle back to that word evangelize, and why I wanted to ask you that, make you all uncomfortable right at the beginning of this message. That's, that's exactly what Philip does here. Evangelize sat, though. Your van jelly sat, though. Don't let your van jelly sit out too long. It might go bad. <laughs> that's, that's how I remember this word. It's another Greek word. But it's, the, it's where we get the word evangelism. Evangelism. And it's the verb form of gospel. It's to gospelize. It's to evangelize. Evangel, the evangelizing is the spreading of the gospel. It's the verb form of the gospel. So literally all it means is to proclaim the good news. And there's a translation note I found from the LSB that I thought actually quite helpful. It says in the LSB, uh, the verb evangelisato is translated as proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming, rather than preaching the gospel, in order to avoid confusion with the other Greek word for preaching. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, so I won't try it, but there's a separate word for preaching. The Spirit's work of spreading the gospel message continues here as Philip keeps proclaiming it wherever the Spirit directs or places him. Evangelizing or gospelizing is simply proclaiming the good news. If you believe something, it's not hard to state it as a fact, is it? It doesn't have to be a speech. I'm preaching right now. I prepared this sermon. But proclaiming the gospel doesn't have to be a prepared sermon. It doesn't have to be 
a song and a dance with a rousing finale. <laughs> it simply has to be proclaiming the good news. It can be any of those things. It can be a movie. It can be a, a, a concert. It can be a speech, a sermon. It can be many things if you're simply proclaiming the good news, however it is that God has given it to you to proclaim. Coming back to Isaiah, in this case, I do wonder. We're not really told how Philip explained the good news, other than he began with that passage, where the eunuch already was, which is so cool. That's a great place to start, is wherever you meet someone in explaining the gospel. Whatever they already grasp, whatever truth they already have found, start there. Because, and in this case, I have to wonder, if, if Philip just had him keep reading for a few more chapters, there is some good news that would leap right out of the passage for any eunuch who might happen to read it. Flip forward to chapter 56 of Isaiah. And put yourself in the shoes of this eunuch who just traveled across the world to worship in the temple at Jerusalem and was probably told that he couldn't go in. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to Yahweh, the Lord, say, the Yahweh will never let me be a part of his people. And don't let the eunuchs say, oh, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what Yahweh, the Lord, says. I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house. Within the walls of my house. It's a reference to the temple. A memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Whoa. Can you imagine reading that as the eunuch? That is so cool. Whatever Philip said to the eunuch, however he explained it, we know he gave him the answer to his question. The main question was who? Who is this prophecy about? Who is the Messiah? Who will usher in these promises to fulfillment? Or have I already missed the train? The answer is Jesus, who did indeed come and lived and was led like a lamb to the slaughter, who was struck down, but who also rose again and lives to lead those who believe him to eternal life. That's the good news. And I have another interesting comment from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. It points out the contrast that you see with Philip, who responds almost passively. He's just kind of going with the flow, wherever the Spirit leads him. And the questions that are asked of him by the Ethiopian, he's just kind of responding to, to what he's seeing and observing. The Ethiopian, by contrast, is hungry and active. He's taking an active role in his conversion, as it were. He invites Philip to join him in his chariot. He doesn't send him away. He doesn't say, oh, what are you doing? Back off. Get in here. Explain this to me. He asks Philip for the interpretation of the scroll he has been reading. He invites he, the opinions and expertise of this person, and he actively then seeks baptism, clearly understanding either by what Philip has 
assume, assumingly by what Philip has told him, that that is the next step. Philip might say, oh yeah, so you should be baptized now. The eunuch goes, water, let's do it now. <laughs> it's just so cool. And then he goes on his way rejoicing. Philip disappears. Ethiopian doesn't lose heart of that whatsoever. He goes, that was awesome, and goes on his way rejoicing. I just think it's so cool to see this kind of proactive behavior from someone clearly seeking the truth to see it rewarded in this way is satisfying. We'll see next in the story of Saul, the next chapter, is sort of the inverse, where he's doing everything he can to resist Jesus, and Jesus intervenes to save him anyway. I have to also point out that this is a great demonstration of what a simple baptism can and should look like, continuing in the pattern that has already been established. Mike brought up last week, there's no real perfect formula as to exactly how baptisms and and conversions go. But the pattern is that it always accompanies a profession of faith. And, And in this case, it looks like God just provided this perfectly orchestrated scenario wherein someone was prepared not only to hear and read and receive, but to also understand and then critically respond to the gospel without delay. In a situation where apparently time was of the essence, because God whisks Philip away after that, and what did they need to respond other than belief, understanding, belief, and some water? Albeit, you know, this is... this. It's pretty clear by the text this was a substantial enough body of water they were able to go down into it and be immersed in it, baptized in it. That's what the word baptized means. Clearly, the exact nature of the water, where it was, how dirty it was, how clean it was, it was not important. Rather, the availability of it and the eagerness of the Ethiopian to be dunked into it, I think, says a lot about the character and heart of the Ethiopian. Uh, Now, at this point, I have to do a, a quick poll. Is anybody actually missing verse 37 in your translation that you're looking at now? Does it go verse 35, 36, 38? Huh. Does anybody actually have 37 in it? Camille, would you be willing to offer what it says? Amen. That's a a pretty great profession of faith right there. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, the reason many translations omit this or maybe put in a footnote, if you have footnotes and commentary, it might explain. This is the, the, the earliest and best manuscripts that we have of this text. The earliest copies don't include this. So translators decided it would be more responsible to not include this if it wasn't a part of what was originally documented. But even if those exact words weren't said, it's a a reference to the implied confession, that there there was a confession that took place of some kind that indicates an outward verbal verification of intention, is what I would call it, when it comes to the baptism, to verify why are you doing this. It's very much different from what we see in the story of Simon, right? Very different intention. But this is something that's also taught later by Paul in Romans. 
Romans is so, or, and throughout all of his writings, but Romans is so rich and complex and dense, right? And yet it also contains some of the best standalone verses for presenting the gospel message, doesn't it? So we have the, the Romans Road, which is just a series of verses in Romans that presents the gospel. Uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 10.9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, there's that word confess, just admit it if you've seen it to be true. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. Truly believe. Don't just say it. Believe that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. They go together. So confessing the risen Jesus as Lord leads to salvation. But confession is also something that we do before God and each other in response to our sin and mistakes and uh, even unintentionally hurting each other. Confession is sometimes necessary as an ongoing spiritual discipline. I don't remember, no, I don't have any of these verses up here, I'm sorry, but I'm going to fire a few at you. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's James 5.16. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, this is referring just directly to God, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Proverbs 28.13 just speaks to the character of God. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes his transgressions will receive compassion. So when we talk about confession in the context of sinful behavior, in that case, confession is really a, a symptom or a precursor to repentance. Confession is admitting. You're, you're going the wrong way down the road repentance is actually stopping the car and turning around and going the other way after admitting that you're going the wrong way. But a confession can also be that any declaration of truth that freely admits it to be true. In that sense, a confession is simply the verbal expression of belief that's held in one's heart. So these are good things. In either case, these are good things for us to practice repeating to ourselves and to each other and to others. Now, we have to spend a minute talking about verses 39 and 40, right? This is a rather sudden and unexpected deployment to the east that we get here. Snatched away or whisked away is, is the literal translation. And when I read this account, I sometimes wonder why God doesn't do this more often. Do you? It seems like it would save a lot of time if he would just do this, like, instead of having us invent cars and airplanes. And I, I should be thankful for how fast and easy travel is now more than ever. There are still times I wish I could teleport, even just between my home in Lauville and Carthage here. I can't imagine having to actually walk or ride a camel every time I wanted to go back and forth. I can get here in, like, 15, 20 minutes. It's, it's nothing. 
why did God choose to do this? It's, it's not exactly clear what happened exa- or why. And I think it wasn't really clear to anyone who experienced it. All the, the eunuch knows is that Philip was there, and then he wasn't. All Philip knew, he was, he, he was with the eunuch, and then he was at Azotus. That's really all it says. And we're left to kind of wonder about the logistics. So were they, I suppose, left to wonder about what just happened. I, honestly, I probably would be pretty freaked out if that happened to me. And maybe that's why God doesn't do it to us more often. It sounds rather rattling, uh, though not entirely unprecedented. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, First Kings and Elijah, First and Second Kings, you know this does kind of sound like something God would do in a pinch, uh, but he prefers to let humans kind of do things naturally, which I'm going to come, come back to in a minute, actually. As a toss, I, I showed you already, I'll just go back to this, I guess. It's that, that city along the, the coast there to the east of, or, um, I'm sorry, to the west of Jerusalem. Um, I kept saying east. I meant west. I told you I'm a, I'm a little foggy today. Directionally challenged. To the west of Jerusalem, along the coast um, of the Mediterranean Sea. So that body of water that you see there would be the Mediterranean Sea. Major, major trade port. So I want to wrap up just by reflecting on a few uh, topics of application that we can gain from the story. Going back to the idea that Philip was led by the Holy Spirit to go to this desert road. It, was, it would have been a main road, heavily traveled, but not heavily populated. You know, like a highway. Why would you go out to the highway to spread the gospel? His willingness to obey without knowing the outcome, to me, is a powerful example of what it looks like to have faith in action. Not just to believe God, but to actually follow God. This story is a great reminder of the importance of being attuned to God, for listening to God, and to being obedient to his guidance. To be obedient requires that you're listening and hearing his voice. And Philip was willing for his expectations to be disrupted. Um, though when it says the angel appeared to him, I'm not sure how much choice that really leaves you. If an angel appears to you and tells you to go a certain way, I'm going to obey. But he, it re- there's no hesitation that we're told. And simply going down a different road than he was expecting led to this transformative gospel conversation. We have lots of reminders of the importance of trusting God. One uh, one of my favorites is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 that says, Trust in Yahweh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. In all aspects of life, if we acknowledge God in it and trust him, we can count on him to keep us straight. Even, through, even on desert, desert roads through the wilderness. And we have passages like Isaiah 30, 21. This is great. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, this is the way. Walk in it. That's so cool. And you, you skip to the next chapter in, in Acts, and it says, Saul was looking for people of the way. <laughs> what a beautiful reminder the concept of God's voice directing his people on their journey, wherever that may be. If anyone feels that they lack guidance or direction from God, all I would say is spend more time with him. 
James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, if your way seems dim or foggy, light it up with the truth of God's word, the Bible. Spend more time reading and understanding the Bible. Not just reciting it like magic incantations, but understanding the message, what it means. Using the tools and communities available to us to do so. And we can pray like David in Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, O Yahweh. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In you I hope all the day. For us, we Gentiles, far beyond the ends of the earth <laughs> to the Jews, thanks to Jesus Christ, we get to rejoice in that same salvation, the hope that comes from trusting in the Lord. That's the, the core of the gospel, is the goodness and mercy of God reaching out to us in love, which Philip knew to be fully manifested in the person of Jesus. And that Philip would extend the hope of Jesus to this man really is an extension of God's promises to David and before him to Abraham, extending to bless and save all the peoples of the earth. The Ethiopian eunuch as a foreigner and as a eunuch, kind of a double whammy there, he would have been considered an outsider in many circles of Jewish society. His encounter with Philip and his subsequent baptism is a powerful testament to the inclusivity of the gospel message. While Jesus taught that he himself is the exclusive entry point to eternal life, and that way Christianity is exclusively Christ-centered, Christ has extended that offer to anyone who is willing to believe and follow him, regardless of their background. And this story highlights that although cultural differences inevitably, and we'll see this come, come up in Acts, it causes some clashing, some painful growth, the early church was, even since the day of Pentecost, and we see the, the, them speaking in tongues, engaging with different cultures and backgrounds. The Ethiopian coming, as he does, from the ends of the earth, stands at the threshold of the worldwide mission as yet another announcement of that mission. It's a foreshadowing of what we'll see with Peter and Cornelius and his own eagerness to hear Philip and his subsequent request to be baptized conveys Luke's understanding of the, the willingness of the Gentile world from that point on to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a small wonder that the early church writers pass along a tradition that is historically contested, but there's a tradition that the Ethiopian, this Ethiopian eunuch, returned to his own country and preached the gospel there, started what we now know as the Ethiopian church. There is, in Galatians 3, 28, Paul, Paul writes this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful declaration of the equality and unity of believers in Christ to transcend social, cultural, and even gender divisions, none of which are all contentious anymore in 2023 are they? 
And this story really is just the beginning of several revelatory experiences which showcase the inclusive nature of the gospel. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that topic today because we're going to have plenty of time to discuss it more going forward. The important thing is this. And the important thing from this story specifically, um, I would say summarized by John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's a very well-known verse for a good reason. It speaks of God's unstoppable love for the entire world, offering salvation to whoever believes. That salvation is available to all. And having these cross-cultural experiences, wherein not just the physical words of Scripture, but the true meaning behind God's Word is being revealed, that's how the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. Whether this exact guy went on to evangelize his whole region or not, there is a rich Ethiopian Orthodox church, Christian church, that goes back to the first century. And I think that's pretty cool. This eunuch must have had at least something to do with that, right? He's reading from the book of Isaiah, but doesn't understand what he's reading. Philip's role, then, in interpreting the scriptures underscores the importance of being able to teach and understand the Bible in the context of proclaiming the good news, in the context of evangelism. Romans 10, 13 through 15, says this, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, it's good news. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone to tell them? And how will they tell them unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things. Which leads me to my final point, which is just to reiterate that this story is an example of God transforming human lives through human encounters. I made a comment about how we are attracted to flashy supernatural things and stories and the teleportation. It's like, whoa, that kind of gets our attention. And we see Jesus and the apostles do signs and wonders to, to get people's attention so that they can explain the good news. And we can see, of course, God's Spirit at work, of course, throughout this entire story. But he still chose to work here not with a bright light from heaven revealing the truth to the Ethiopian. We'll, see, we'll get that in the next chapter with Saul. But rather here through a human conversation with someone simply more knowledgeable on the subject at hand. Someone that God provided to him, but the provision came through human interaction rather than some grand or shocking display of, of power. Sometimes the former, in my experience, is actually more effective in actually reaching our hearts when it comes through a relatable way. That the eunuch insisted on baptism to me indicates that he recognized not just the good news of salvation, but it's imperative to respond. To understand the gospel is to also understand that it will change you 
based on your rejection or acceptance of it. And he wanted to make it very clear that he wanted to pursue Jesus. He didn't want to spend any more of his life without making that very clear. Welcoming whatever changes that would eventually lead to in his life. We don't know, but it sure is fun to wonder how it affected not just this man, but the whole, her, the whole court of Candace, the, the queen, and that whole region beyond. Everywhere he went rejoicing. The eunuch's brief encounter with Philip leads to a transformative experience simply by Philip being willing to step in, in faith uh, up to a different road. His profession of faith in Christ and even his baptism, and as he went away rejoicing, we can at least speculate, it brought further rejoicing wherever he, he spread that good news. So both of them being willing to interact with each other, to talk to each other, despite whatever communication barriers might have been present, to be willing to work around those barriers for the sake of a greater purpose of coming to know and understand each other first, I suppose, so that we can better walk together in an ever-deepening knowledge and appreciation and love for our Savior. This transforms us for the better, and it's worth it. Father, I pray that you would transform us through our time that we spend dedicated to you, that you would honor those who seek you, who seek truth, that you would bestow upon us wisdom, those of us who ask for it, that you would transform us by continually helping us grow in our knowledge of Scripture. And we know that sometimes we want everything all at once, and you, as a good father, are teaching us slowly in the way that you know is best for us. And sometimes it's hard to wait. It's hard to... The anticipation can be, can be very difficult, but it's also so good because we know that you're in control. Lord, help us to be willing to open ourselves up to your word in our lives, to your spirit and the transformative power that it has. It's scary to trust you and to trust each other and to walk together with you. But Lord, I know it's worth it. And I thank you for the, the great blessing that we have of, of doing this together as a church as your body. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, I don't think, did you want to close in the song today, or did you have something? Well, yeah, let's, let's practice that new song. Keep us all.